0: Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're in Acts 17 this morning. Uh, I went back on the calendar and looked. It was late September, early October that we started this series in the book of Acts, and we called it Plan A. And the reason we call it Plan A is we recognize there's only one plan for the world. There's, There's a Plan A for the world. There's no Plan B for the world. What's the Plan A? Well, before it's a what, it's a who, it's Jesus. Jesus is plan A. Jesus is God's plan A for the world. But when he left the earth, he commissioned us, i.e. the church, to be the plan A. He's saying, you're going to scatter out, you're going to be my witness, and the only way you're going to be able to do that is you're going to have a power, an external power source, a a dynamite, explosive power that's going to come in you called the Holy Spirit. And so this whole book of Acts tells the origin story of us, Right? Anybody fan of that show? This is us, you know, I have to raise your hand. My wife and I are all into that, you know. It's like, "Oh my goodness, it's emotional, roller coaster all up and down." But it's telling the origin story of this family. This is the origin story of the church. It's the book of Acts. And, and you know, we, I think we told you at the beginning, we're not, we can't go through the entire 20-something chapters verse by verse. We'll come back to other passages later, but it, we calculated it would take about three years to do that. So what do you do when you want to study a book of the Bible and you don't have three years to do it? You break it up in chunks. So we've been breaking it up in chunks, digging deep on particular passages, um, and, and then applying them to where we are in this season of the church. And so this morning, we come to honestly, maybe one of the most relevant passages in the whole book of Acts. And some of you are thinking, I've heard that one before. Yeah, you know, I really actually just think that's true, and we'll we'll tease out why that's true as we go. Now, let me catch you up, okay? Just, you know, like previously on the book of Acts, all right? Previously on, on plan A. So you've got this small group of people, 40 people or so, that get the Holy Spirit. They go out and start preaching the gospel as Jesus, you know, challenged them and commissioned them to do, and it explodes with growth. You've got 3,000 that come in the first day. You know, a few weeks later, there's up to 5,000. It's exploding. Jesus had said, you'll start in Jerusalem, then you'll go out to Judea and Samaria, which is like, you know, start in the city, then go out to the county, you know, the surrounding area, and then you're eventually going to go to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus predicted, and that becomes sort of the the outline for the whole book. So the first seven chapters take place in Jerusalem, explosive ministry happening there. Then they're pushed out through persecution. Once the first Christian is killed, a man named Stephen, they're scattered out. This was God's provision for them to be scattered in this sense because the gospel comes out into Judea and Samaria. And we talked about this several times. Everywhere the gospel goes, joy follows it. So not only is the message of Jesus being spread, but joy is being spread. Fullness of life is being uh, spread. People are finding peace. People are finding a hope. And this is the message of Jesus. He came, he died for your sins, and now you can have fullness of life in him through trusting Christ. And that's the message they're bringing about. Now you get to about Acts 13, and now the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And it's primarily being carried there by a man named Paul. Paul, who used to be Saul, persecutor of the church. Christ transformed him and is now using him as an instrument of the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. This morning, Paul finds himself in Athens. As in Athens, like the Athens, you know? So you're reading through Acts and, you know, Thessalonica, it's like, that's a hard one to pronounce, and you, Berea and, and Philippi, and, you, and then you get to Athens. Like, I know Athens, Like, I remember seventh grade, okay, we studied the Greek gods, you know, we know Athens, we know their poets, and we know their culture. That was the influence that that city had on the world, where thousands of years later, we still know of Athens, we still know of the influence of the Greek culture, and this is where Paul finds himself. Now, I've got to say one more thing by way of introduction, and then I just want to jump in. It's a lengthy text, it's packed. Like, I've I regretted that we didn't break this uh, text into two parts, you know, because there's so much here. So if I'm talking a little fast and it looks like I drank like three cups of coffee, that's why, you know, I did have my coffee and, I, and I'm, we're all operating on an hour less of sleep, okay? But we're gonna dive into this text because it's so rich and there's so much here. You know, I want you just to think of this before I dive in. The same spirit That inspired this text, that breathed it out through the author is the same spirit that is in us this morning as followers of Jesus. And so what I actually think is happening when we read scripture today and when scripture is preached today, when you hear it read today, when you study it today is the author of the text is in a sense re-articulating it, re-speaking it into our context. Now, why would God do that? Because God uses words to do things. God spoke creation into being. Jesus spoke the church into being through his commissioning, through the proclamation of the gospel, saying, go. God is still speaking today. How is he speaking? He's speaking through his word. What does this mean for us? I think he's actually going to do a work through this text. Not through me, right? I'm some plain vessel. He's going to do a work through this text. And so we want to listen well and we want to engage not just our minds, but, but all of us this morning in this uh, text of Paul in Athens. All right, that being said, let's just jump in and uh, let's start in the first verse. So verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, and we'll dive in right there. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. All right, let's talk about this just a little bit. This is around AD 50. Now, if you remember your world history, and you're certainly forgiven if you don't, for most of us, it was a long time ago. This was not the pinnacle of Greek culture. This was not the apex of Athens. That was about 500 years earlier. So, you know, think about the Parthenon, think about the Acropolis, you know, all that stuff that Paul would have been walking in, observing, looking, you know, a city full of idols, he's observing all this. That stuff was 500 years old. Imagine that for a minute when Paul got there. But it wasn't in ruins. In fact, the city, although it was no longer a political capital of the world, was still a cultural capital of the world. So they were known for their higher education, they were known for their art. They were known for all these things. And, you know, fast forward, I did a little research this week. Why is Nashville called the Athens of the South? You know, you hear that sometimes. Well, I always thought it's because we had a Parthenon, you know. It it actually, that that phrase, Athens of the South, predates the Parthenon by, by quite a bit. You now it started being called the Athens of the South because of the education, the colleges that were here, the universities that were here, public school. This is one of the first places that really kind of provided that in a new way in the South. So we have this reputation, a lot of schools, a lot of colleges, a lot of art. Now, most of our art now is music, but there's a lot of other forms of art out there as well. And you start realizing, okay, okay, there's some relevance here to our time and our place. Now, Paul's reaction to Athens is not, oh my goodness, I've always wanted to come and you know, be at the place where these famous poets and sculptures are. This is unbelievable. Let me take it all in as a tourist. That's not his reaction. What we learn in verse 1 is that there's something here that, that's provoking his spirit. What is it provoking his spirit? It's a city full of idols. Now, let, let's talk about this interesting word translated Provoked. Okay, it's not a negative connotation. We hear the word provoked and it's like, right? Paul's going to fight. Okay, now there's part of this word, if you dig in deep, it's only used twice in the New Testament, by the way. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you see in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You following that? Old Testament written in Hebrew. Um, Sometime before the first century, it was translated into Greek because it was a Greek speaking world. So if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you see this same word used multiple times. It's always about God's response to idolatry. God was stirred up when he saw the Hebrew people worshiping the golden calf when you know Moses came down from the mountain after getting the Ten Commandments and many other places as well. God stirred up. So Paul is having the same emotion toward idolatry that God has toward idolatry. He's provoked, he's stirred up. Now, I think he's stirred up for two reasons. Number one, he's got passion for God's glory. Number two, he's got passion for the people of Athens. So let's just talk. Passion for God's glory. Imagine um, you've got a best friend who's a songwriter. And probably a lot of you do, right? A lot of songwriters out there. Imagine your best friend's best song before it gets out there to the public is stolen by some other songwriter. And then it like explodes on the charts and all the money and all the credit and all the glory is going to this other person who stole the song. right? Would that not provoke something in you if you love your friend, if you care about your friend? Paul loves God, and he looks out and he sees all these things being attributed to false gods, images made of stone and gold and marble that belong, attributes, works that belong to God alone. Paul loves God. He's stirred because of his passion for God's glory. He's also stirred for his passion for the people because Paul knows that their idol worship is empty. Paul knows they're praying to things that cannot answer. They're asking for God so-called God, whether it's, you know, the God of the fertility or the harvest or the sea or the land, to do something that that so-called God cannot deliver on. And so their needs are being unmet when they're taking them to these false gods. And I think Paul was stirred up. He was aroused, so to speak. He was provoked for the people of Athens. A lot of application for us that we'll get to at the close of the service. So in verse 1, Paul sees something that makes him feel something that then is gonna make him do something. Look at, I said verse one, it's verse 16. You're with me. Uh, Look at verse 17. So, okay, that's that's the idea of therefore. You know, because of what he's seen and what he's felt, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Okay, let's unpack this. Uh, Paul would go to a city. Anytime he was sharing the gospel in a new city, he would go, he would start in the synagogue. Why do you start in the synagogue? Those are the people that are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And he would preach Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. But he wouldn't stay just with the Jewish people. He would go out into the marketplace and he would proclaim Christ. Now you've got to shift your strategy when you move from Jewish audience to a secular, pagan, pantheistic, polytheistic audience. Okay, so Paul is contextualizing the gospel. That's one of the themes of this passage. Now, when you hear marketplace, don't think of just like the little place where the fruits and vegetables are sold. This is the, uh, the, the agora of Athens. Like, this is the, the center of culture. This is the city center. This is the marketplace of ideas the marketplace of culture. If you had something that you wanted to bring to, there's one place you bring it to. You bring it to the agora. You bring it to the marketplace. There's nothing in our culture to compare to this. The closest thing we have, and this is ironic, is the internet. But the internet is so spread out that there's no community to it. But think about this for a minute. You do your shopping there, you read your blogs there, you post your pictures there, you catch up on the news there. You see, you debate things there. That's the agora, but they're all doing it in one spot, you see. You start to see why we're so individualistic, you know, today compared to the cultures of the past that are more collective. So Paul enters the center of culture in the center of the culture for the whole known world, Athens at that time, and he brings Jesus there. So much application for us. Uh, Let's let's go on here and, and move past this Um, You know, I I skipped a quote. I don't want to skip this quote. Uh, John Stott, you know, great Christian commentator, Christian thinker, Christian writer. uh, He he has an excellent commentary on Acts. If you're going to get any commentaries on Acts, by the way, if you're interested in that, this is the one to get. Written by John Stott. Let me read to you what he wrote uh, about the application here for us as we think about bringing Christ into the culture, into the agora There is an urgent need for more Christian thinkers who will dedicate their minds to Christ not only as lecturers but also as authors, journalists, dramatists, broadcasters, as television scriptwriters, producers, personalities, as artists and actors who use a variety of art forms in which to communicate the gospel. All in a way which resonates with thoughtful modern men and women and so at least gain a hearing for the gospel by the reasonableness of its presentation. And in this last sentence, Christ calls human beings to humble but not stifle their intellect. Christ calls human beings to humble their intellect but not stifle our intellect. We're called to engage in the marketplace. Okay? And and so here's here's what it's going to take. If we're going to live this out like Paul did, since there's not one central gathering place anymore like there was in Athens, it's going to take all of us. Those of you in higher education, those of you in art, those of you in the music industry, those of you in in other businesses, entrepreneurs, those of you that are driving kids to the soccer field, those of you that are on the PTA, those of you that are engaging in your neighborhoods, it's going to take all of us. You see, this is what John Stott is saying because the marketplace now is everywhere. It's out there. And yes, even, hopefully respectfully, online, (laughs) in social media, right? That's part of where our culture is. All right, let me move forward for the sake of time. We'll come back to some of this application. Listen to what happens next. We'll pick it up in verse 18, and, and we'll go 18 through 21. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming for you're bringing some strange things to our ears so we want to know what these things mean. And then Luke's going to give a little parenthetical comment here. that's kind of funny. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. You know, it's like, you know, there's, culture doesn't change that much in 2,000 years, right? All right, Paul was out in the agora, he's out in the marketplace, he's having conversations with anybody that'll listen, and he gets engaged probably in some debate with these philosophers, and, you know, you can go back and study the Epicureans and the Stoics, and, you know, it's kind of interesting how Paul's going to weave in some of the threads of their philosophy into the message that he's about to teach. They ask him, or they invite him, rather, to speak in front of the Areopagus. Now. What was this? Well, the word itself, literally it would be translated the hill of Ares. Ares is a Greek god. Uh, Mars is the Roman equivalent of Ares, you know, the god of war. And so this is where we get Mars Hill. It comes from this Greek word Areopagus. Now, we've got a picture that I want to put up on the screen so you can see where this place is. Uh, This is the Areopagus in the foreground, okay, that light-colored stone. In the background, you can see the Parthenon up there, right? That's the Acropolis, that hill that sort of overlooks the city of Athens. So, so this is literally the area where all these debates and all this philosophy and all this art was taking place, and you can still go there today and visit. Now, just to deflate the balloon a little bit, unfortunately, it, it may have been that at the time Paul spoke in front of this council, they were no longer meeting on that hill. You know, it's, there's some debate Paul may have delivered this sermon right there on that hill or it may have been down below in the agora in a, in a different meeting place but the council over time the city council took on the name of the hill and so Paul is addressing this council the Areopagus and this would have been you know significant people in the city intellectual people cultural shapers the power players of the city and Paul gets an opportunity what an incredible conversation or an incredible opportunity for Paul to have this conversation with them. Let's look at how Paul starts his message, verse 22 and 23. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. What a great way to start a message. You know, Paul knew what he was doing. You know, talk about an introduction. Okay, he's acknowledging their culture. He's saying, I've been here a while. I'm kind of understanding some things. And then he's piquing their curiosity because he's saying, I'm going to tell you something that you don't yet know, that your brilliant minds haven't figured out. I want to reveal to you. Um, There was a saying by a Roman writer uh, at the time, it was contemporary to Paul, and he wrote, It was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. You know, that's the situation that Paul was in everywhere you looked. Now, we joke a little bit about having a church on every corner in, you know, Middle Tennessee. You know, they, they, they blew us away with their devotion to their so-called gods. They, they would have had five or six temples on every corner, not just a church on every corner, you see. This, this was the context that Paul was in. This is what sort of provoked him and stirred him. And he's beginning with this way. It says, I even found one that said to an unknown God. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. They were so nervous that they'd left out a deity that they didn't know about that they kind of had a catch-all. You know, it's like, you know, to the tomb of the unknown soldier. We've got one of those today. It's like, it's really for everybody that, that didn't get honored, well, this is what this was. You know, I, I imagine in my head they're afraid that, you know, some unknown God's going to show up and, you know, want to do something nasty to them. And But like, no, 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 we, we weren't ignoring you. You're right here. We just didn't know your name, you see. So this is to the unknown God, the inscription on this. And Paul is using this as a springboard to launch into his message. So that's the intro. We're about to get into the meat. Before we do, let me just highlight two things that I want you to look for as we're walking through Paul's argument step by step. Number one, notice how he's gonna contextualize the gospel. He's gonna put it in their culture. He's gonna put it in language that they most understand and identify with. You know? He's not gonna quote from Old Testament scripture. He's gonna quote from their poets. And he's gonna say, all truth is God's truth, essentially. That's the first thing I want you to know, how he shaped his message according to the context of his audience. The second thing to look for is how he utilizes a primary theme throughout his argument, okay? Good argument, you're gonna grab onto a theme, you're gonna come at it from different angles, and that theme is gonna be carefully chosen, selected for your audience. What's Paul's theme in the message? It's the theme of a life, life, L-I-F-E, And as we go through, I want you to start thinking, why did Paul talk about life so much? And we're gonna grab onto that as we build build this out. All right, here we go. The meat of the message, verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Paul starts with creation. The God who made everything. And he starts with the beginning of life. He's like, this is the life giver from the very, very beginning. And since this God, this unknown God to you that I'm proclaiming, is the God, singular, he made it all, everything is under him. All things that were made, all life that exists is dependent upon the one God. And Paul goes on in this first statement, He doesn't need a man-made house. Now, okay, here's Paul right here. Maybe he was down below in the marketplace. Either way, Parthenon was visible. I'm imagining just a little subtle gesture. He doesn't need a man-made house, i.e. Parthenon was the home of Athena, you see? So Paul's walking this careful line. He doesn't want to needlessly offend his audience, but he's got to push against the areas of his audience that are not in truth. This is the same balance we walk in. So we carry the gospel out into the marketplace, right? We don't want to needlessly offend our culture. And yet we also need to bring life to our culture where it doesn't have life, right? So we're constantly walking this balance. Paul is a great example of this. All right, so that's, that's just his, his starting point. Let's go on verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands, I love this next phrase, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Here's the context that Paul's addressing. Every one of those pagan temples with, you know, a a gold or 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 an ivory statue of a deity, there were servants that cared for those deities. They would literally bring them food. The food would just sit there, obviously, (laughs) So they'd have to come back later and clean the food up and then later bring them more food. If there was dirt or dust or smudge or maybe the, the idol you know, fell down and was a little broken, guess who had to clean it? Guess who had to repair it? The servants of the deity. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying a true God does not need people to serve him. He doesn't need anything at all. In fact, he's the giver of life. He doesn't need life given to him. So he's setting up this pretty remarkable contrast between these so-called gods and the one true God. He's essentially saying, look, if you've got to bring food and water to your deity, how much life does that thing have? This is what Paul is developing in his argument. All right, let's keep going. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Here's where I think Paul is going here. He's saying, before you think this is just a Hebrew God that I'm proclaiming to you, he's the one that made all all people, all nations. He established the boundaries, even yes, for your great empire 500 years ago, even for this Roman empire that we established now. God is the God of all all of it. So you see where Paul's going here, he started with creation. He's saying God is the one source. God is the one giver of life. And now he's about to mention the purpose for which God created it all. You tracking? Verse 27. That. Okay. That little word is important. That's that's a, it's, he's introducing a purpose clause. You know, so think about the word so that, okay? This is the purpose that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. What a beautiful sentence. Uh, Paul saying, the purpose of all of this, all this life that God put in the universe is so that men and women would seek God and not just seek him, but find him. Now, integrate this in with the book of Romans when Paul talks about all creation has been sort of screaming out the name of God so that men and women would look up and look around and look near them and say, Who? Who? And then they come to find God. As Paul, in this case, brings specific revelation to them. And that's why God had sent Paul. How kind of God! Not just to point to himself in creation, but to also give us specific revelation, particular revelation from God. And this is how Paul is introducing this. Now, I love this phrase, if perhaps they might grope for him. That's exactly what the Athenians were doing. All these idols, God of the sea, God of the harvest, God of the war, God of love. You you see what this was? They're groping. They're essentially saying, look, got to be something up there. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some goddess up there that if you sacrifice and pray to her, she's going to help you find the love of your life, right? Or, or she'll give you a child, right? W- w- whatever this is, they're groping. So Paul's saying, you've been groping. What do you do when you're groping? You don't, you don't grope when there's light. You grope in the dark, or if you're blind, you, you sort of feel around. Okay, oh, what, what, what is this? Uh, 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 I don't know. You know, it's a brick. No, it's not a brick. It's an iPad. Okay, that's silly. Uh, but here's the idea. They're groping. Paul is saying, "Now let me show you. Let me turn on the light so that you can see all that you've been groping for." All right, he's gonna he's gonna go on with this idea in this in the same verse. He's not far from each of us. I just want to mention briefly. Paul never would have said that pre-conversion. Uh, As a Jewish scholar, you wouldn't go into a group of, of pagan idolaters and say, God is not far from you. A Jewish scholar without Christ would come into that audience and say, God is really far from you because you're really far from him. And so if you want to get to God, you got to just do all this stuff and come back and climb the rope of religion and become Jewish. And then maybe, just maybe God will hear your prayers. Paul saying, no, 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 he's not far. Why could Paul say that? Because Jesus had made God not far. Jesus was God brought down to earth face to face, eyeball to eyeball. Paul's saying he's not far from any one of us. Okay, so he's he's bringing them along. He starts with, he's the author of life. Now he's to, and he's right here. He's right here. Verse twenty-eight. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also His children, being then the children of God. We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Here's where Paul's going with this. He's saying, "Listen, because He's the giver of life, He's your father." Right. Now, not yet in a a salvation justification sense, but in the universal sense that God's the creator of all, God's the father of all, God is the life giver of all. And he's saying, since you're made in his image, don't go making other things in other images. How silly that you would worship your own art. You, the created. You see, this is his argument and he's quoting from their own poets to, to drive and support his key message about the source of life. Now, the, the next two verses are going to be the so what, the application. Therefore, verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And that's the, that's the grenade, okay? Like that's gonna explode in just a minute. You're gonna see their response to the, the resurrection. Before we talk about that, let me go back. Here, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, there's grace. Like the unknown God is not showing up angry at you for not knowing him. There's grace, okay? That's the first part that he's saying here. He's overlooked the times of ignorance, but there is a day coming where the true God is gonna make it all right. The evil, the suffering, the murder, the abuse, the broken relationships, they're all gonna be brought back together. You see, there is a day coming. How's he gonna do that? He's gonna reconcile all things, using theological language now from Paul's own writings, he's gonna reconcile all things through the one man, Jesus Christ, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. Now, in the middle of that, Paul's saying, our response is to repent. Let's talk about that. Repentance gets a bad rap. Here's why. When, when you hear that word, that sounds like such a religious word. Like, it sounds like such uh, what are you saying? I gotta go, you know, like, you know, beat myself, you know, and, and, and do all this rigorous discipline. No, 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 that's climbing the rope of religion, right, from last week. Here's what repent means. The literal word means to turn to turn. So you're you're heading one way, and and you change course. You, you, You turn. Or you're going after one thing as a source of life, and you're going to turn to something different. Now, in the context of Paul's sermon, there's something specific that he's calling the Athenians to turn from, and something specific he's calling them to turn toward. He's calling them to turn from lifeless things and calling them to turn toward the life giver because he knows what they're after. They're after life. That's what they're groping for. That's what they want. And Paul's essentially saying, here's where you're going to find it. And how can I prove to you that life is in Jesus, not in all these other worthless things, because he raised from the dead? You see, Paul actually really believed that. Now later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul's gonna write, if the resurrection is not true, then you kiss all this goodbye. There's no point in being a Christian. You know? go, go eat, drink, and be merry if the resurrection's not true but it is true. Like Paul's actually presenting to them, okay, this is a fact in history that actually happened. What does it show related to Jesus in life? It shows that he's so full of life as the author of life, as the source of life, that the enemy of life itself couldn't touch him. You see, he is life. That's what the resurrection shows. And I can't wait for Easter morning Because that's what we're going to talk about. The resurrection means there is life and you can have it. That's what the resurrection is. But it's only through Jesus. This is Paul's whole argument. Let me summarize the sermon and then we'll talk about the response of the sermon and our application. Here's essentially Paul's argument. I know you're seeking after something. You want something that's alive and real because you you keep trying to grope around and find it in all these lifeless idols. You even have one that's to an unknown God. You're searching. Let me introduce you to what you've been searching for. You want life? How about a resurrected God? You see, this, this is the argument. The same God who created you is also the one who was resurrected. He's so full of life, it just explodes off of him. Isn't that what you're looking for, Athenians? Don't you want life? And he's pleading with them, turn, turn, turn to the giver of life. Now, here's the response. It's gonna feel like a downer at first, okay? And it, it kind of is a downer, honestly. But we'll talk, we'll talk it through. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, you know, don't you wish it said, they all became believers in Jesus. No. Some began to sneer. Others, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Not 3,000, not 5,000, a few, a few. And so Paul's going to leave Athens. There's no record of a church that starts in Athens he didn't stay there very long. Apparently there were just a few. Everywhere the gospel's preached. Some are going to sneer. Like maybe openly, maybe just silently. It's just like, man, you're weird. You're weird, dude. Some are going to sneer. Some are going to say, okay, you know, I'm curious. I'll, I'll hear you again. Some are going to say yes. Because the Spirit's on the move. Right? What do we care more about? What do we care more about? Do we care more about the rejection? (laughs) Or do we care about, what are their names? You know, Dionysius and and the Areopagite, whatever these folks are, you know, in our context. This is Jonathan and this is Samantha and this is Cynthia, all right? Who do we care more about? Maybe just a few. Would God use your entire life to deliver the message of true life? And maybe just a few, maybe just one would put their trust in Christ through the message of the gospel that you deliver all right but is it worth it these are lives that were changed these are lives that were changed all right I want to give you an illustration of what I think this message is all about I've articulated as clearly as I think I can and now I want to visually uh, um, just kind of tell you what I think is going on here all right, so you, you've been wondering, okay, what are all these glasses here for? You know, fancy goblets. They're, they're pretty. They're sparkly. They're, they're really beautiful. Uh, each one of these is a little bit like one of those gods, one of those idols in Athens that Paul came in. And he observed, and they're gold, and they're flashy, and they're shiny. And, and, but Paul notices something that they don't notice. Paul can see something because of his worldview that God has given him. He, Every one of these glasses is empty. They are bone dry. There is not a drop even of condensation in any of these glasses. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, you need life. You're thirsty. You've got this beautiful collection. None of them have water. And then Paul says this, I know the water source. I know where you can find it. It's not a what, it's a him. It's a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He rose from the grave and drink, believe, believe, Turn, here's the repentance part. You're looking for water here, it's not there, so turn, repent, it's here. And so Paul lifts up the resurrected one. He lifts up Jesus Christ and he says, drink. Now, all we can do is give them a choice. They're gonna sneer, particularly when we talk about resurrection, you actually believe that? Oh, yes, I do, yes, I do. Can you prove it to me? I don't know if I can prove it to you, but I can point to some evidence. Exhibit one, right here, life that I am experiencing. Exhibit two, what he's done in my marriage or my family. Exhibit three, my sister-in-law, my brother. My, you know, we tell our stories, we tell our stories. We go to the scripture, we are provoked, you see. Why are we provoked? For God's glory and the fact that there are thirsty people that don't know where the true source of water is. Now, I don't have a lot of time left, but I gotta take this to one more personal level of application. We also have our collection of idols, okay? Yes, we do, Christians. We know the life source, yet we're still trying to find life in things that aren't life. Let me give you a contextualized definition of idol worship that I think you might be able to identify with. An idol is anything apart from your creator that you seek fullness of life from. Anything apart from your creator that you think you're gonna find what's not actually there. So you go over here, some of you, and you're like, man, my career is where I'm gonna put all of my life. You're not gonna find life there, all right? You're not gonna find it. It's gonna fail you. Some of you are like, oh, relationship. Okay, I can't be lonely in the life. I'm gonna put it in my marriage. I'm gonna put it in my kids, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, or maybe the dream that someday I'll find the one and be fulfilled. You ain't finding in life, okay? It's empty. Some of you, it's your image. You're like, man, it's really important for me to be known as this kind of person, that kind of person. For some of you, it's your physical appearance. Here's the deal. You put anything ahead of God as your source of life, you're gonna become a slave to these things. Because they've got to be fed. They've got to be cleaned. They've got to be watered. And b- before you know it, you're building your whole identity around something that actually has no life for you. Why would you do that? Only because you think there's actually life where there's not. Now, here's where it gets complicated. A, a lot of these things are good. It's like, you know, are, are you telling me that my husband is bad or my kids are bad or my career or my job or my talent as an artist or my ability or my looks or my body? You're telling me those things are bad, Rob? No. They're gifts from God. But he never intended you would wrap your life around them. He's saying, worship me through these gifts. And the only way you can do that is to keep this as your source. Now, what does it mean to keep this as your source? You repent. You turn from worshiping these other things to worshiping the one God alone. And then you're free to enjoy this stuff. Are you following me on this at all? I got I to tell you how this happened for me this week. All right? And This is going to get really personal. It's even going to get a little bit embarrassing, but I'm going there with you guys. I, I have one in particular on that little display that, that, that I tend to go to the most. Okay, You know what this is for me? It's approval. Specifically, this is embarrassing, it's your approval. You see, I get up here and, and, and I I preach for a living. okay. Some of you that are performers, some of you that are on stage, you'll identify with this. It is far too easy for me to do this all for the wrong reason. You following where I'm going here? If I'm trying to drink from the cup of your approval, it's really hard for me to lay a sermon down. It's really hard for me to to work hard and say, it's enough. It doesn't have to be perfect. I had a hard time with that this week. Part of that's because I love this passage Part of that's because I care about you and I want you to get this. Part of this is I want you to think I'm a good preacher. As embarrassing as that is to say, do you hear this? Trying to drink from the wrong cup. Realizing that this week allowed me to repent. And here's what repentance looked like for me this week. It looked like a prayer. Just went something like this. Father, my security, my affirmation is in you. It's in what your son did for me. It's not in my talent. It's not in my ability. It's not in my words. It's not in my job. It's not in my image. Ultimately, I care more about your word being spoken clearly, even if they think I bumbled and I stumbled and I don't know what I'm doing up here. All right? I was only able to say that when I drank from the water, you see. What does repentance look like for you? Your idolatry with your career, your idolatry with your kids, your idolatry with a relationship, your idolatry with a dream, your idolatry with a sense of comfort, security, you've always got to have it, you're not okay. How would you fill in the blank to this question? As long as I have blank in my life, I'm okay. If you answer that with anything other than the true life source, you're not free. You're serving something rather than be serving, being served by something, by him, you see. Now, I, I gotta finish. I went long. I gotta pray, but I'm not letting you out here without singing, okay? Here's why. The answer to our dilemma of idol worship is always worship, okay? When you're over here worshiping something that has no life, we shift our worship to the true sense. So we're gonna sing about Jesus and we're gonna worship Jesus and that's how we're gonna close our service. So let me pray and then we'll sing. Our Father, we thank you. You've given us life. Um, we taste just little sips of it from time to time. And, and when we do, you know, most frequently your word is proclaimed, and there's, there's something in us, the spirit in us that testifies, says there's life there. There's life in the word, both proclaimed and embodied, you know, the incarnate word. Help us to grab onto that. Help us to embrace it, help us to drink it. Father, this gospel, as you would call us to it, is not something we just believe once and then we don't think about anymore. It's something that has to continually dig its way down deep in our heart to free us from searching for life in things that don't hold it. And I pray that we would do that. I pray that this would be a body that would be worshipers of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's the life that we need to bring out into our marketplace, into our culture here in the Athens of the South. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen, amen.